Welcome to Music and Medicine. My name is Jacques Osmo, and music is my life. In this show, we will discuss the newest research on the intersection of music and medicine from scientific, musical, and historical perspectives. And most importantly, I hope that what you hear in this program will help you identify how to use music to make your own life healthier and happier. In this episode of Music and Medicine, we are continuing our conversation with Stephen Johnson, a British author, BBC music broadcaster, and composer. His recent book, How Shostakovich Changed My Mind, won the prestigious 2021 Rubery Book Award. So let me ask you, you describe all this music in very specific terms. In terms of great composers, great artists, where do you think their ability to create safe space for us to project ourselves onto it stops and their actual intention begins? This is a very difficult word. There's that term, the intentionalist fallacy, isn't there? Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, what a composer sets out to do or any creator sets out to do and what they actually achieve can be something quite different. You know, uh, Dostoevsky, who I absolutely revere, nevertheless, I think he wants us to think that the end of, of the brothers Karamazov is a happy ending, an affirmation of Alyosha's Christian beliefs. Actually, no. It's not. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> but it's. But that's not to say, you know, it's an even greater work for the fact that, well, you know, I love that letter of, of Dostoevsky's where he says, you know, I know I want to be Alyosha the Christian, but the truth is I'm all four brothers. And, um, you know, so that you know, he recognized, I think, that even he, he, even he was able to recognize that his own intention and what he'd <laughs> actually created was something quite different. But there is that famous line of Marlowe's, isn't there? We do not compose, we are composed. And you know, who knows what's actually going on? I'm so aware of my unconscious mind at work all the time when I write books or write music. I, I, the, the, the composer Benjamin Britten was presented with a very detailed analysis of his opera, The Turn of the Screw. And when he read it, he got to the end and said, I'm coming to the conclusion I've got a very clever unconscious. And... <laughs> <laughs> Because I didn't think of any of this. And um, it, it is quite astonishing what our unconscious minds can can do for us, if we can learn to trust them. Oh, absolutely. So how did Shostakovich change your mind? He said to me, you are not alone, at a time when I felt utterly alone. Mm-hmm. And implanted me the hope that one day I would feel, find people who would get me and would share experiences like mine. And one day I did. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he gave me the means to be able to calm myself. He gave me the means to release emotions that were too dangerous to release in any other form. There was no human being at that time with whom I could safely release those emotions or with whom I believed I could safely release those emotions. And he, I spent an enormous amount of time on my own as a teenager, cycling and walking in the rather lovely, beautiful, desolate West Pennine Moors in the north of England, which was near where we lived, which was a great gift of where we were born. And 
I, there were times when the loneliness was so powerful, I thought I, I might not be able to bear it. And it was listening to people like Shostakovich that said, no, no, you're not alone, just hang on. Um, I also think, you know, uh, I loved the Tenth Symphony of Shostakovich. At the end, of some stage during, he wrote it in 1953 when Stalin died. At some stage mm. during that symphony, he would have got the news that Stalin had died. Now, I don't know which point it was and whether or not you can actually detect anything in the music. I think that's probably unlikely. But when you get to the end of that symphony and the motive that's associated with his own initials, D. Scher, D. S. C. H. in German, mm -hmm. Um, bum 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 bum, you know it just it, it turns into this completely wild Cossack dance, which is half hysterical and half joyous. It's kind of it's kind of both. It makes me think of an incredible line from William Blake: "Excess of joy weeps, excess of sorrow laughs." It's both <laughs> at the same time. Uh, but that dancing at the end of that symphony, I, I've survived somehow or other. I've survived. You know, I held out an image to me of the time when I would be able to do the same. And it did. I also think that, that it probably did something in terms of my neural pathways. I, I, I think it probably helped me create mental neural facilities for dealing with what was a sustained and unrelenting traumatic experience of being around my mother um, and also in a part of the world, which because we were a very middle class privileged family, but um, mm -hmm. in a very poor industrial northern mining town. So there were very few people around who could begin to sort of talk the kind of talk I liked. And very many people who thought that it was a sign of of something, well, more or less perverted. I, you know, there was this boy who loved classical music and poetry and nature and cats and didn't like sport or the military or cars. So in between um, being in this home with a terrifying, exciting but terrifying mother and being outside in a place where a lot of people looked on me with hostility. Well, I, somebody on my own age, I remember, killed himself uh, at the time. I didn't. I something kept my hope going and I think Shostakovich is one of the things that did.
We've just heard the waltz, the first movement of Dmitry Shostakovich's Jazz Suite No. 1, performed by the Royal Kontragebau Orchestra, conducted by Ricardo Chili. Today we are in conversation with Stephen Johnson. Stephen Johnson is a British author, BBC music broadcaster and composer. His recent book, How Shostakovich Changed My Mind, won the prestigious 2021 Rubery Book Award. One owes composers like that a great debt of gratitude. I wish I could have told him. And yet, of course, what I hear about him, he was so shy and didn't open up with people he didn't know really well by the end of his life. He'd probably have been rather embarrassed. But there you are. <laughs> I, I, I was able to, you know, I can remember saying to, I met one of his closest friends, a, a former student and one of his favourite pupils, a composer called Boris Tishchenko, who was a lovely man very hospitable to clearly tell why he was such so highly regarded as a teacher because he had a wonderful manner with him mm-hmm. and he but at one point i said how do you because he was talking about you know surviving this terrible terrible oppression under stalinism and later you know under brezhnev and and um i said well how do you feel this privileged boy from a country which compared to yours for most of your life was much, much freer. Let's not just mm-hmm. let's not say free, but much freer. Where I didn't face the secret police for saying things in public, you know, or um and how do you feel when I say that this music speaks to me? And he said, But of course. He'd have been thrilled. He'd have been delighted. You know, he loved it. You know that that it didn't just speak to people who'd been through what he'd been through, but people in other countries too. And I remember looking on YouTube recently and uh, a recording of the Eighth String Quartet, which has one recording's had one. I think it's about had about six hundred thousand views, and for a post-war classical string quartet, you know, it's quite something. And scrolling down through the comments, well, some of the comments on YouTube you read are not very edifying to read. But in the midst mm-hmm. of it, people, I think somebody in Venezuela dealing with all the horrors there, a woman who'd experienced, I think it was a high school shooting from what she said in, in, a, in a USA somewhere, um, saying how this music had helped them. And you realize that, you know, it, whatever the specific circumstances under which he wrote that music, it continues to speak to people going through agonies in all sorts of other different circumstances. And that's the, that's the thing. I mean, this is why I, I get so sad when people say, you know, why should we listen to music in, 
you know, that's not written now. It's not about now, is it? Well, actually, <laughs> actually, if you know, Beethoven, if he's still reaching 100 million people 200 years after he wrote a piece of music, then he is now. Absolutely. You know, you know um, and a, a very great writer I, I, I briefly got to know, thanks to my wonderful musical aunt who supported me when I was younger, uh, a man who liked to call himself an anti-critic and anti-musicologist, and a Russian, uh, an Austrian Jewish emigre called Hans Keller, who had a wonderful knack of winding people up and getting people cross. <laughs> but he sometimes said things that just made you want to hug him. And I remember him saying, "If you strive to be contemporary, you only end up being temporary." And you know, actually, yes, it's important to address issues now. But one of the things that can be most helpful now is to see what has given strength to and meaning to people's lives always. That really, you know, it's like when you meet someone from another country and discover the common humanity. That makes Absolutely. you more aware of what it is that's deepest in you. And it's the same when you meet someone from the past. Beethoven mm -hmm. died nearly 200 years ago and discover that he's reverberating with the same issues that are reverberating in your life. That, you know, then this question about whether it's contemporary or not you know no no this is why these things are still there you know my wife played as a teenager the piccolo in beethoven's ninth symphony and at the end of it she just had to go and run around the albert hall repeatedly round and round till she lost count just to try and earth this incredible sensation of mm -hmm. joy that it brought her and it speaks to people you know, there, there's Shostakovich touching people in very, very different places, touching this English boy in industrial Lancashire, you know. Um, it, it, it just, music is, is, it is not a completely international language. Sometimes you do have to learn to speak another language a little bit, but but when it, the, the really great stuff gets to the stuff that we all have. It really does. I wonder what would, would all those composers think if they knew of the impact of their music you know, they would probably be proud. <laughs> I think <laughs> it's, I was thinking about this with Bach as another. Yeah. Bach, just, Bach is just the sort of supreme figure for me, I think, probably. As he is for people in so many different kinds of musical, you know, you, I'm talking to two true friends who are ex-rock musicians and another guy who's a rapper. And, uh -huh. you know, there's one name that they'll all say, oh, yes, it's Bach. Oh, you know, that's, <laughs> and, you know, you think about Bach, he was not appreciated by a lot of the people in his own time. The mayor of Leipzig made the famous statement, you know, if we can't have Graupner, then we must settle for second best. Yeah. Bach. <laughs> and yet you look in the, in the Bach Museum in Leipzig, which is really worth visiting, uh, those beautiful hand copies that he made of things like the Matthew Passion, which was probably mm -hmm. heard once or twice in his lifetime and then forgotten for a hundred years until Mendelssohn came along and rediscovered it. The way you look at that beautiful copy with things in different colours and the most fabulously fastidious, this is a man who means this to last.
We've just heard Erbar Medich, an aria from St. Matthew's Passion by Johann Sebastian Bach, performed by Eleanor Minnie, an English Baroque soloist, conducted by Sir John Eliot Gardner. Today we are in conversation with Stephen Johnson. Stephen Johnson is a British author, BBC music broadcaster, and composer. His recent book, How Shostakovich Changed My Mind, won the prestigious 2021 Rubery Book Award. It's very strange, isn't it? I can remember when the, when the Shostakovich book came out, it, it didn't seem to attract a lot of notice. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I know maybe I've done this for myself in the end. And there was a part of me that said that. And another part of me said, you hang on and wait. And, you know... Then the reviews started coming in. Then people started wanting... It's now been translated into five languages. Then the award. And then I remember there was a whole page about it in the Wall Street Gazette. Mm-hmm. And uh, all this sort of stuff. And and I, I now get to the stage where I think every week I get at least one email from someone I've never met via my website about this book and about what it's it's said to them. And there's a part of me that always knew that it might do this. And that that was, you know, the, particularly the thing I hear that moves me most, that really chokes me up over and over again, is when someone says, you know, I too listened to dark music and people told me I was crazy. Why did I do this? And a woman recently say, my mother died and I listened to Shostakovich's 10th symphony over and over again and my friends tried to stop me and I knew I had to do this. And then I read your book and I thought I was right. <laughs> you know, and that's, that I can't tell you how thrilling that is to have made something out of my own pain that is able to do that for other people in a more modest way than someone like Shostakovich, but still in a similar way. That's giving meaning and comfort to others. Yes. Is. And in feedback, justifying to me what I went through. Well, you know, it, Almost retrospectively, I'd love to go back to my 13-year-old self and say, hey, guess what? One day you're going to write a book about all this and it's going to mean something to people. And it is all right. And it is all right. It will be all right. right. It will be all right. You'll marry an incredible woman who's... We're celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary next week. Oh, congratulations. 
I can't <laughs> believe it. She still feels like my girlfriend sometimes. She's still my best friend. She's still beautiful and extraordinary. And and um, it, it's it's odd, actually. It's very curious. My mother, even though she did a lot of damage, could have certain moments when she just suddenly say something that was right. And I remember one occasion when I said, it's very odd, here am I a teenager, because I was surrounded by people who were into rock and pop music and only listening to music by people their own age, and I wasn't interested in it. And uh, I get a lot more out of rock and pop music now, by the way, than I did then. Mm. And I really appreciate the genius of some of the great rock and pop musicians now. But um, I remember saying to my, my mother, it's very strange, isn't it, that a lot of the people I seem to like only really found their meaning, their, found their, their sense of purpose in, their, in the, some second half of their life. And she said, oh, you'll be like that, dear. <laughs> and then sort of disappeared back into her world of self again. And, and, but she was right. You know, it, it's been the second half of my life has been the period in which it's all really started to come together. And I just love to say, particularly to younger people who are struggling and can't, you know, you can, there, is, there is so much to be achieved in the latter half of life and in the later years of life. You know, you think of someone like Immanuel Kant, whose masterwork, The Critique of Pure Reason, I think he, he wrote in his late 60s. And there's nothing before he was 60 that, that we regard as great. And mm. then around about 60, he wrote, he read the work of the philosopher David Hume, and as it were, woke me from my dogmatic slumber, and out comes all this great work. He'd just been preparing all those years <laughs> to do this thing. And, you know, I'm finding that the momentum is increasing. Um, you know, I'm doing more and more, I've just done an arrangement for a chamber orchestra of a choral orchestral piece by Lily Boulanger, and I'm thinking, mm. this is a great thing to do. I might do more of this. And um, it, it, it's, it, you know, our culture is so focused on youth, so focused on the imperative that you must find out what it is that you need to do and want to do, you know, in your 20s. Dear God, I was hardly starting then, you know? Oh, I absolutely agree. I often say that I like my life better, I like myself better, the older I get. Well, good. You know, I, it's... I, I, I hope and, and I'm, I very much suspect that that'll continue. <laughs> well, we'll yeah. see, we'll see.
We've just heard the second movement, Allegretto, of Beethoven's Symphony No. 7 in A major, performed by Chamber Orchestra of Europe, conducted by Nicolas Harnincourt. Today we are in conversation with Stephen Johnson. Stephen Johnson is a British author, BBC music broadcaster and composer. His recent book, How Shostakovich Changed My Mind, won the prestigious 2021 Rubery Book Award. And finally, I wonder if you might be able to tell us about specific pieces of music that you feel very partial towards. Then we can share them with our listeners. Well, um, I'm thinking of, you know, for instance, the astonishing second movement of Shostakovich's Tenth Symphony, which expresses feelings, a release of feelings so violent you feel it might kill you. It's a bit like white white water rafting. But at the <laughs> same time, it's incredibly exciting. You feel this is a man, maybe he'd heard the news of the death of Stalin by then, or maybe he yeah. decided he was going to pour out all his feelings anyway, or what? I don't know. We don't, we don't know. I mean, um, it, it is so thrilling. You know, I'm a, I, 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 I remember another woman I spoke to said she, she, she was aware she was gripping the seats, her seat in the concert hall so tightly that her hands hurt. She had blisters mm-hmm. on her hands. You know, she said she was scared. At the same time, the moment she finished, she wanted to hear it again, you know. And um, that's, that's a terrific example. Um, I'm thinking the Cavatina, the fifth movement from Beethoven's Opus 130 String Quartet, which has at its heart this incredible song of sorrow. Apparently Beethoven himself, deaf, reading it. The manuscript was crying as he did so, according to his secretary. Um, And his heart is a violin solo, which is written in such a way that it sounds like someone's voice is breaking so that they can hardly speak. And over Mm -hmm. it is written the word beklemt, oppressed. And yet the release in this is so beautiful. It's extraordinary. That's another one I would think of. Um, I think of, uh, for instance, introduced about 10 years ago to, if we're thinking about the world of rock and pop music, an extraordinary musician um, called Nick Drake, who died very young, almost certainly suicide, who wrote a song called Riverman, possibly inspired by Hess's story Siddhartha. But it is a song which... I think, comes, having been, as I describe in the book, very close indeed to killing myself. And uh, that what really the psychiatrist said, oh, this is that we know is a terrible warning sign, is that I ex- once I'd made up my mind to do it, I experienced this almost kind of like nirvana-like bliss. Mm-hmm. I, felt, I felt, oh, there is an answer. And I, you know, I convinced myself that my wife would be better off without me. And this was about 20 years ago. And um, uh, that she would eventually come to see that it was for the best, and you know all this stuff. And I, I, and that song, I think, captures that exquisitely poised sense of yeah, there is a release, there's a way out. But at the same time, under it, this sense of unbearable sadness. What on earth? How how painful can an experience be that somebody wants to end their own existence? Uh, I'm I'm very glad now I didn't. But I So are all, all of us. Close yeah. It was just the most Yeah, I, I, I it was only the most extraordinary thing. I think I've got to, the story's in the book, but I've got to tell this story. Um it uh, it was um period where Kate and I had been 
slightly distance from each other. And I was convinced that she'd come to the... Con- I was very depressed that she'd come to the conclusion that she'd made a mistake marrying me. And a friend of ours had... had her father had died after battling with emphysema for 15 years. And she sat down and said, oh, I don't want to say this, but all I feel is release for him and for me, you know. And I imagined my wife saying the same thing mm. to someone at the kitchen table with a glass of wine, you know. And... I, I, I even felt, you know, yes, I can do this out of love. And I I had made up my mind and I wept for a very, very long time and then felt, no, this is the right thing. And I got back to the cottage where we was we just moved to the country and uh, Kate was pacing up and down the cottage, smoking furiously. And she just looked at me and said, what's happened? And she knew. Excuse me, I feel quite... Um, Still gets to me this. I've been seen mm-hmm. in my worst place. And she was frowning. She looked furious, but it was the fury of not like my mother's fury, which really felt like she could annihilate me. Um, it, it was the fury of love. It was the anger of love. And uh, that was the moment that really changed my my, my life completely. And shot the which had prepared me for it in many senses. I feel he had, but um, that that yeah, that 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 was um, this incredible moment, you know, when 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 I'd been seen, and I think maybe again in Shostakovich there is a moment in the eighth quartet in the fourth movement of that where the cello sings this incredibly sad song from his opera Lady Macbeth of Matsensk which was associated with his first wife, Nina. They had a very stormy relationship, but I think she was probably the love of his life. And after that, there are no more quotations in the quartet. And there's just this beautiful fugue, which, in which the emo- you, know, it, you, know, it's, you can imagine the, the emotion starts, has been pent up, starts to flow. The release of tears, maybe. Shostakovich himself wept as he heard it. But there's something about that recollection of his wife who maybe he did feel did see him and did see what he was going through. Um, and when I, after that experience with Kate, I remember thinking of that moment and thinking that was what it was like. And um, uh, so that's another one. Uh, we've got Beethoven, we've got Shostakovich. Um, I'm trying to think of I don't know, something maybe maybe a little more peaceful, something a little bit more serene. Um, I think I talked about that quality in Bruckner that of mm. underneath all his his um anguish there is something light. It, the, 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 so much darkness there may be, but the nearer you get to the heart, the more light there is, as with Beethoven. And for me, there's a little motet called Lucas not Lucasiste. There's a little motet called Os Justi, uh, The Mouth of the Just, which was written for the consecration of the new cathedral in Linz. And it has something of the ethereal beauty of the great Renaissance church composers like Palestrina. Mm-hmm. I feel this is him almost as close as possible to that source of light in his own life. And so that, that that's definitely something I put in there too. Thank you so very much. And... I have to say it's it's absolutely privilege to speak with you. Thank you.
<laughs> Thank you so very but much. It is for you too. I mean, you've been a, you've been fantastic interlocutor. Uh, you you you've enabled me to say things that aren't always easy to say. You know, talking about that business with Kate, or thinking of my mother and the fact that you know, when she finally completely lost her her her, her, her sanity in her last years. This wasn't dementia, by the way. Mm-hmm. She did actually violently attack people. And there was always that possibility underneath. I felt no one else would have believed me, but that she had that capacity for some terrible violence, maybe murderous violence. Mm-hmm. There was a time when I was, as in the book, when I was about 14 or 13, and I was being an annoying teenager probably, but she suddenly whirled around and brandished this pair of scissors at me and said, you're lucky you didn't get those in your back. And oh, my I goodness. Just standing in the corner of the room going, oh, yeah, that's not like other people's mummies <laughs> yeah and you know when i when i think back to all that and think about how nature and music and then later poetry and literature but music was this absolute lifeline Betty came by on her way Said she had a word to say About things today And fallen leaves Said she hadn't heard the news Hadn't had the time to choose Said she prayed today for the sky to blow away, or maybe stay. She wasn't sure. For when she thought of summer rain, 
With the sounds of Nick Drake's Riverman, we come to the end of our conversation with our guest today, Stephen Johnson. Stephen Johnson is a British author, BBC music broadcaster and composer. His recent book, How Shostakovich Changed My Mind, won the prestigious 2021 Rubri Book Award. Until next time, stay happy and healthy and keep listening.